0: Good morning everyone. My name is Mike Weigline. If you don't know me, uh, I'm the pastor here at ICP and it's a joy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And and if you are uh, visiting with us today and I haven't had the chance to greet you yet, I would just add my my greetings to Carolina's. We're so glad to have you here this morning. I'm going to start with a pop quiz because I like that last hymn that we just sang. It's one of my favorites and. I would just ask, we always sing this, here I raise my Ebenezer. Does anybody know what an Ebenezer is when we're singing that? Okay, we, okay, okay, you, I, you have a PhD, okay, I'm mean, just saying. You, yeah, I know, anybody else, anybody else? Yeah, Joe, what is an Ebenezer? A stone, a stone right, that's great, it's a stone. What kind of stone? What, is it, what does it mean? A reminder. a reminder, that's right, a stone of remembrance. Is that what you were going to say, Preston? Yeah, okay, a stone of remembrance, that's right. No, it's a great thing, and, and they, when the, the Israelites raised their Ebenezer, they said, thus far has the Lord brought us, right? It's this reminder of what God has done in our lives. Uh, I, I like to to ask that because I think a lot of times we sing that and don't really know what it is, what it means. And so it's saying, look, let's remember how far God has brought us in our lives and give thanks for that. So, uh, so when you sing that song, you can remember that when you, when you, uh, when you sing, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. Um, if you are visiting with us today, we are in the middle of a, uh, a pre- preaching series in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel According to Luke. Luke. Um, And that's going to carry us through Easter and a little bit beyond. And we're going to be looking at uh, two passages from Luke chapter 12 today. And actually, I say there are two passages just because there's a heading there, but I really think they're meant to be held together. And that's why we're going to be looking at them together this morning. Uh, So Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 13, and we're going to read through verse 34. Uh, And we're going to be talking about uh, wealth and money and possessions a little bit this morning. And uh, we talked about that. If you were here last fall, we had a sermon on generosity, uh, generous giving, and we talked about the same idea. And so you may hear some of the repeated themes. I'm giving you credit that you'll remember what was said in that sermon a couple months ago. Uh, You may hear some of the same things again, and that's okay. Because Luke has a lot to say about money and wealth and possessions and what we do with them. And so as we go through Luke's gospel, if we don't look at what he has to say about money and wealth and possessions, then we're going to miss some of what is at the heart of Luke's gospel. Uh, So we're going to be looking at that today. And the reality is that scripture talks a lot about our money and our wealth and our possessions and what we do with them. And so we need to be thinking about these things. So have that in mind as we go through again. You may hear some things repeated. I think that's okay. It's good for us to hear the same things over and over again sometimes, as long as we're hearing the right things over and over again sometimes so uh, let's uh, take a moment to pray uh, before we look at our scripture patches this morning gracious heavenly father we give you thanks as we come together to worship as we see see the sun shining outside lord as we hear the birds chirping as we remember your creation uh, we give you thanks and praise today and we thank you for the opportunity to gather together to worship you and to hear from your word Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active, that that your Holy Spirit has inspired and authored these words, and that you still use them to speak to your people today. So, Lord, we ask uh, that you would open our hearts. Where our hearts are hard, would you soften them? Uh, Would you make us ready to receive whatever you have to say to us this morning? We pray that you would reveal your Son, Jesus Christ, to us today. And we ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Starting at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed you meet as a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about what your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. "'Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. "'They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. "'And how much more valuable you are than the birds. "'Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? "'Since you cannot do this very little thing, "'why do you worry about the rest? "'Consider how the wild flowers grow. "'They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, "'not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these.'" For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week, as we were going through uh, Luke's gospel, we talked about how at at Luke chapter 9, that there's this transition that occurs. In Jesus' ministry, it shifts from being centered in, in Capernaum and in the region of Galilee, where he was from, and he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. He sets his face toward Jerusalem and for the cross that is set in front of him and he starts to share with his disciples what is coming that this is what is in store for him that he is going to uh, suffer and be rejected and he's going to be uh, put to death on the cross and then raised again on the third day this is in fact what Jesus came to do this is this is the end game for him and he was doing this to forgive the sins of the world and to reconcile people to god because we had been alienated from god by our sin And so for the next several weeks as we go through these passages, we can imagine Jesus walking toward Jerusalem uh, as Jewish pilgrims had been doing for centuries before him. We can have that in our minds uh, as we read these passages. And Jesus is meeting new people along the way. He's continuing to preach the good news of God's kingdom and calling people to repentance, to leave their lives of sin and to follow him. And at the same time, there's a a transition uh, in the focus of Luke's gospel. And chapters 10 through 18 really are looking at what it means to follow Jesus. What does it mean to be Jesus' disciple? That is the focus of chapters 10 through 18. There's a greater focus on Jesus' teachings in this section, and much of it has to do with discipleship. I have one of those Bibles where the words of Jesus, the ones he actually spoke, are highlighted in red. Have any of you ever seen a Bible like that before? Okay, so you can actually see this transition occurring in Luke chapters 10 through 18. If you flip through your Bible, starting at chapter 10 all of a sudden, almost all of the words are read. And that carries on through chapter 18 because we are looking at Jesus' teachings. It is emphasizing what he has to say about the kingdom of God, about following him, about discipleship. And so this is where we come to our passage this morning. Jesus is teaching. And we're told at the beginning of chapter 12 that a crowd of many thousands of people had gathered to listen to him. And Jesus is focused on teaching his disciples. It says he turned to his disciples and said this thing. And and the disciples are a smaller group within this huge crowd of thousands of people. These are the ones who have really started to believe in him, who have started to put their trust in him and who have started to, to form their lives around what he is teaching and saying about himself. And so Jesus gives this teaching, the first part of chapter 12, he gives this teaching to his disciples, but then When he gets done with that part, someone in the crowd uh, starts talking to Jesus. And this person wants something from Jesus. This person uh, really wants something from life. He wants something from life. And he turns to Jesus because he thinks Jesus can help him get what he wants. This man has expectations, and that's why he reaches out with this question. And so he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Tell my people, uh, my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, several years ago, I'm not going to say how many, but several years ago, I reached uh, a, a milestone in my life. I turned 40 years old. 40 years old. Now. This is a moment that I thought, you know, this is supposed to be the mark of something. I remember when my dad turned 40, that people gave him black balloons and little, you know, graveyards on the top of the cake. And there was this whole idea of being over the hill, right? And, and, and so people still joke about 40, right? You're, you're on the, the tail end now at this point, okay? But I am a respecter of age. And so when I turned 40, I thought, well, this, this is a sign that I have reached a certain place of, of wisdom, and respectability in my life, right? Maturity and responsibility. I have several kids, a a wife, a a job, a home, all of these things. And and my hope was that as I continue to get older, I would continue to grow in all of these areas, my maturity and wisdom and responsibility. Uh, And You can judge for yourselves whether that has been happening or not. But there was also something I realized around the same time when I turned 40 and and have seen since then. um, There's something that causes a quick regression of all of those adult qualities uh, which I have attained over the years. And that is when I spend time with my siblings, with my siblings, my family of origin. I'm a middle child. I know people think that says something about me, uh, what I'm like as a person. I have an older sister and a younger brother. And when all of us get together, including with my parents, we will very often fall back into the roles that we played 30 to 35 years ago, right? We get back into the same pecking order. We tell the same stories. We make the same jokes. We have a lot of the same arguments. We push each other's buttons in ways that only we know how to do because we are siblings, and we respond to it. We let our siblings get at us in this way. I see some heads nodding out there. If you don't have siblings, uh, you might have cousins or childhood friends, but there are people in your life who can sort of make you go back to what you were like as a child and it's not always pretty it can be comical to see the way that otherwise rational adults behave around their brothers and sisters maybe you've experienced this for yourself right I'm thankful to say that I have good relationships with with my brother and sister now and so even when we were acting like we were in the early 1990s there's still something very comforting in all of it for us but my point in saying this is that that Adult siblings have an interesting effect on each other, almost like anybody else. Depending on the relationship, we know how to bring out either the best in each other or how to bring out the worst in each other. And sometimes we might do both of those things, depending on how we're feeling at the moment. The heart of our passage today is a well-known parable that Jesus tells about building bigger barns and how we should use our money and our possessions. But this parable is told in response to a specific situation. It's like we looked at last week. He is answering a question that comes from someone, someone that wants to know what Jesus thinks about this thing. And it is a conflict between two adult siblings, two brothers. You have an older brother and a younger brother, and they are having a conflict with each other over their inheritance. We're not told much about the relationship between these two brothers, but whatever it has been like in the past, it seems clearly not to be in a great place right now. These brothers are bringing out unpleasant qualities in each other, in this interaction that we're having with each other. The situation has gotten to the point that one of them, the the younger brother, he calls out to to Jesus in the middle of this huge crowd, and he asks him to settle the matter for them. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, this is not necessarily something that would have been uncommon back then, right? Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher. He, he has wise things to say. And the law sort of regulates what's supposed to happen with the inheritance, but it can leave some things open. And clearly in this case, it's not all settled. It's not all clear. And the younger brother is making the request about this inheritance because a lot of the laws in the Old Testament favored the oldest brother. That's just the way it was in the family. And so this man, we assume the younger brother, is looking for some sort of backup from Jesus. He wants Jesus to support his view of things and to help him get what he thinks is coming to him. He believes that this is rightfully his and he needs someone who knows the law, a teacher, to say, listen, he is right. Give him the inheritance. It shouldn't be too hard to wrap our heads around what's happening here. It's not uncommon even today to hear about inheritance, breaking families apart, even if it's just for a time, until things get settled. Settling an estate has a way of bringing long-held emotions to the surface, both for good and for bad. And that's what we see happening with these two brothers. Now, you would think that it would have been easy for Jesus to simply respond with a yes or no to this request. Say, okay, yes, I will do what you ask. I will tell your brother to share the inheritance with you or to say, no, you're wrong. I don't agree with you. I'm not going to do that. But Jesus doesn't do that because he wants to get at something deeper that's going on here. He wants to use this as a teachable moment. He wants to confront this man, not just with his request, but what's behind the request as well. What is going on in this man's heart that is causing him to ask this question of Jesus? What is going on inside of himself? And this passage is meant to do the same for us today. As we hear this parable, we should ask the same question of ourselves. What is going on in our hearts when it comes to matters like this? So Jesus first responds with a quick statement, with a, with a warning. He says, "Be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness, for a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions." Right. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Now mark that down, folks. I think that is a a verse that you should take home and remember and keep with you at all times. That is a word from the Lord that our lives do not consist in an abundance of possessions. If this is not something that you struggle with, then give thanks to the Lord for he is good to you. And pray for the rest of us (laughs) because there are a lot of us who struggle with this idea. I wonder how much of our time is spent looking at what other people have and wanting it for ourselves. Their income, their, their status, their house or flat, their car, their friendships, their family. We look and we say, look at what they have. I want that for myself. My life would be better if I had what they have. And so we covet and we envy. We want what is not ours because we think that it will satisfy us. We think that these things are what will make us happy, and so we covet the things that other people have, and this in turn drives us to consume. We buy more things. We store up more things for ourselves. We like stuff, or at least a lot of people like stuff, and we like to get more of it, I'm an American, so I know this is a particularly American problem. Maybe not in every culture, but it certainly is where I come from. I wonder, too, deep down, how many of us think that our lives do consist in the abundance of our possessions. I wonder how many of us actually operate from that idea. The more stuff I have, the more things I have, the more I can put on my list, that is what makes my life worthwhile in some ways. Do we allow how much we own or the quality of the things that we own define us? Does it give us a certain status? Is it it possessing that status that drives us in life? And perhaps the question that we need to ask ourselves is what are we really pursuing with our lives? Is it God or is it something else? Now, this is not a new problem, coveting, idolatry. We remember that the 10th commandment in the 10 commandments is thou shalt not covet. And there's a reason that it's there. They wouldn't have to make it a commandment if people didn't struggle with it. So this is an age-old problem that people have. We covet things that do not belong to us. And I like what one commentator said about this. He says, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, don't have idols, right? And the last commandment are two sides of the same coin. If you want to know what your idols are, then ask what you are coveting. If you wanna know what your idols are, the things that you worship other than God, then ask what you're coveting because the answer may be found there. I like what John Calvin has to say about idolatry. I might've shared this, this uh quote with you before but John Calvin says this he says the human heart is a factory of idols and every one of us from our mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols this is part of the human condition that we put other things in place of God we just sang it prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love right this is part of what we do as human beings Sometimes we're faithful to God, but we're so quick to move away and to put other things in his place. I was in Preston a hard time about being a Ph.D., and the reason I appreciate you doing that, you let me use you as an example, Preston, because there were times when I was in seminary. I'll explain. There were times when I was in seminary where I toyed with the idea of continuing on in school to earn a Ph.D., This was something that I thought I might want to do. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with earning a Ph.D., and people do it, and they put them to good effect and use in building up God's kingdom in the church. And there's plenty plenty of people in our congregation who do that. They put them to good use. The problem for me was that this was something that was an idol for me. It was something that I was coveting. It had nothing to do with anybody else. It had nothing to do with what God was calling me to, nothing to do with building up the church, because I imagined a certain sort of status and respect that came along with it, kind of like being 40. And I wanted that, right? I wanted that. I wanted it to make me more upwardly mobile. I wanted people to look at me and think, oh, look what he has achieved. I should listen to what this person has to say. There was a certain kind of life that I desired, and this was the ticket to get there. It had nothing to do, again, with what I thought God was calling me to or about building up the church or the body of Christ, but it was about me and what I could get out of it. And this is the point of the parable here that Jesus is telling. This is a story about a wealthy landowner who has a bumper crop. He gets so much that he doesn't have room to store all of it. And so he says to himself, I'll just tear down the barns that I have and I'll build bigger ones. And then I'll just sit back and take it easy for as long as I can. I'm going to keep all of this for myself. This guy is going to live the dream. But then we hear this prophetic word that his life is going to end that very night. And then who is going to get to enjoy everything that he has set aside for himself? This whole parable is is like a synopsis of the book of Ecclesiastes, and and Ecclesiastes goes into a lot of these ideas, and we're going to take a quick detour over there really quickly because I think Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about this. Ecclesiastes is, is one of the wisdom books of the Old Testament. When we say it's one of the wisdom books, it means that it wants to teach us how to live well before God. It wants us to teach us how to live faithfully before God. And Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about the pursuit of wealth. I once heard Ecclesiastes described as an ancient book for anxious moderns. And I really like that. It's an ancient book for anxious moderns, meaning people should read it now. Even if you aren't, you should read it now because there's something in it for you. So this is what Ecclesiastes has to say. Chapter 8, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. And we skip down to verse 15. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. The writer of Ecclesiastes recognizes that a lot of people spend a lot of their lives chasing things that will not satisfy and that won't last. And the Hebrew word that's used over and over again in Ecclesiastes is the word hebel, hebel which we often translate into English as vanity or meaningless. But it really means something more like a mist or a vapor, and the point in using it over and over again isn't to say that life has no meaning to it but that life has a certain sense of ephemerality to it like like a mist it's there and then it's not it passes quickly and try as we might we cannot quite possess life or control it the way that we might want to as human beings it's like chasing the wind it's like chasing the wind This is, uh, life has a certain quality to it that is like this. Jesus uh, puts it this way earlier in Luke when he's talking about discipleship. In Luke chapter 9, verse 25, Jesus says this, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Some translations say their very soul. This is what's going on with this man in Jesus' parable and and also with the man who asked him the question in the first place. They're chasing after the wrong things, things that will never fully satisfy them and things that they cannot take with them. Now, on one level, we might look at this parable and think, well, this guy's problem is that he was greedy and we shouldn't be greedy like him. And there's some truth to that. He should have been more generous with his wealth and his possessions. And that's true. We shouldn't be like him in this way. We should be more generous with our wealth and possessions. I think there's also a way we could be a little bit sympathetic with this man and say, well, he's just trying to be a wise investor. He was just saving up what he had earned to take care of himself in retirement. Some of us may even wonder what the big deal is. He's done well for himself. Why shouldn't he just kick back and enjoy it? That would be a good thing. It's okay. But there's something much deeper going on with this guy, which is the real problem for him. And we're given a couple of clues in the text that point us to it. The first clue is who he consults with, with making his decision. Who does he consult with when making his decision about what to do with his mouth and possessions? himself. He consults with himself. It says, he thought to himself. This is what I'll do. And then he says to himself, or he says to his soul, there is no consideration of God or God's kingdom when it comes to how he is going to use his wealth and possessions. This man's concern is for himself. And in case this is too subtle, right, uh, God himself speaks to this man and calls him a fool. This is the next clue that this guy has gotten off track and is taking no consideration of God. God himself speaks to him and calls him a fool. This is a harsh word. There's really almost no harsher word for people in the Bible than to be called a fool. And any time you see the word fool in the Bible, it should make you think about Psalm fourteen. Verse 1, and the definition uh, we are given there of a fool, because it says, The fool says in his heart that there is no God. The fool says in their heart that there is no God. And that is the mistake that this man is making. And it's the same mistake that we all make when we covet, and when we make idols, and when we act out of greed. We are living as if there is no God, or at least the God of the Bible isn't real, as if God doesn't exist. Or if he does exist, then he has no relevance for our day-to-day lives. And so we replace God with other things. And if this is what we think, if we think that God doesn't really exist or he has no relevance for our day-to-day lives, then what we do with our money and possessions will have very little to do with our life of faith. We will consult with ourselves and do as we see fit. This is why Luke puts so much of his focus in his gospel on money and possessions. And and really, again, it's a theme that we see throughout Scripture. Because Luke recognizes that an abundance of wealth, while not bad or sinful in and of itself, it always brings with it a temptation to rely on ourselves, other than God, to provide for our needs. As one commenter, a man named Joel Green, says about it, he says, we can't ever be neutral or passive towards our wealth. We either master it or it masters us. We either master it or it masters us. And Luke also recognizes that what we do with our money and our possessions can't be separated from our life of discipleship because what we do with these things is reflective of our heart's posture toward God. This is why Luke wants us to be generous with what we own. Why we should share what we have with others, especially the poor and the marginalized in society. Because in this way, we witness to God's kingdom. In this way, we witness to God's kingdom. And this is what Jesus is getting at in the second part of today's passage. And these two sections really shouldn't be separated from each other. They are meant to be held together. Jesus is setting up a contrast between two ways of being in this world. Now, this, this second part, the second teaching, we don't just find it in Luke. It comes in, in Matthew at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. But Luke here pairs it with this parable because I think he wants us to see these two teachings next to each other and let them inform each other. Jesus wants to show us that the guy asking the question about his inheritance is worried about the wrong things. I was talking with uh, our elder, Dan Stein, yesterday about uh, what I was going to be preaching on today. And I was saying, you know, we're talking about brothers and the inheritance. And Dan said, he's worried about the wrong things. And I was like, yes, yes, I'm going to take 35 to 40 minutes tomorrow to make that exact point in my sermon. But this is the point that Jesus is getting at. This guy is worried about the wrong things. He's setting up a contrast about two different ways of being in the world. We can be a fool like the man in the parable and live as if there is no God or we can live by faith, trusting God to provide for our needs as if God's kingdom is real and is present now. We remember back uh, to Luke chapter four, and Jesus was preaching in his own uh, synagogue in Nazareth where he grew up, and he said that he had come to proclaim good news of the kingdom of God, and all of Luke should be read through this lens. All of Jesus' teachings should be read through this lens. What are we being told about the kingdom of God, and what does it mean for our lives? And here Jesus tells us, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious, do not worry, and do not be afraid. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will wear, and we might add where you will live or what people think about you. Don't be anxious about these things. He says, these are the things that the nations of the world seek after. These are the things that the pagans seek after. Everyone else, those with no faith. Those who don't know the living God, these are the things that they go after. But Jesus says God's people aren't to be that way because we know that we have a heavenly Father who cares for us and who wants to provide for us. And I love that Jesus in this parable uses the example of of birds and of crops and of, of plants. And he says, look at them. They have everything they need. Aren't you more precious to your heavenly Father than they are? You can trust God to provide for you. So what are we worried about, friends? What are we worried about? What are we anxious about? Plenty, plenty, right? We live in a a world where we hear constantly about wars and conflicts that are going on. I think there's always a, a question of, is it ever going to reach us or reach our loved ones? We read about natural disasters, about disease and poverty. We read about climate change and the way it might affect everything and the world that we're leaving for our children and our grandchildren. We think about struggling economies and the way that these things will affect the whole world, right? But then we also worry about things much closer to home, things that affect our everyday lives. We worry about our jobs. Are they secure? Is it going to be there tomorrow when I go back? What happens if I lose it? We worry about visas in this congregation. What happens if I don't get to stay? Or what happens if my family doesn't get to come? These are things that we worry about. They're real things. We worry about our homes and our families, our children and our grandchildren. What kind of world are they growing up in? Will they be safe? Will they have faith? We worry about our parents. Are they okay? How long will they be here? What will my life look like without them? Are there amends that need to be made with them at some point? We worry about our friends. We worry about our grades. If we're in school, are we going to do okay? Are we going to succeed to the level we need to? For all of us, we worry about what the future holds for us. And so there is plenty to be worried about. And so much of it just seems to be out of our control. And so we do worry We live in an anxious time, and many of us come from anxious cultures. And into all of this, Jesus speaks this word. Do not be anxious, do not worry, and do not be afraid. Because your heavenly Father knows what you need, and it is his pleasure to give you the kingdom. Friends, remember that the kingdom of God is present to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord I like what uh, N.T. Wright says about the kingdom of God in, in commenting on this passage. He says, the kingdom of God is at its heart about God's sovereignty sweeping the world with love and power so that human beings, each made in God's image and each one loved dearly, may relax in the knowledge that God is in control. He goes on to say this, if the gods that you worship are distant and removed, then of course you will be worried. But if God is the Father who calls you his child, then what is to stop you from trusting him? If God is the Father who calls you his child, then what is to stop you from trusting him? As Jesus started telling the parable of the rich fool at the very beginning, he tells the man talking to him, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Friends, your worth, your value as a human being does not come from what you have. It does not come from what you own. It doesn't come from your ability to attain more and more for yourself. It doesn't come from your potential to succeed in life. It doesn't come from your looks. It doesn't come from what people think about you. When we think about what our life consists of, then we'll spend our whole lives chasing after things that will never satisfy us that will never make us happy and that in the end, we cannot take with us. But what the gospel tells us, what Jesus tells us is that our worth, that our value, what our lives consist of is the fact that God has loved us with an everlasting love. He has loved you so much that he sent his beloved son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die on the cross for our sins, for your sins and mine. And because of that, our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. We belong to him. We too are his beloved sons and daughters in Christ. And this is where the value of your life rests. And when this becomes the biggest reality of our lives, when we live in light of this truth and we put our trust here, then we can stop worrying so much about getting more and more and more for ourselves. And we can be generous with our wealth and our possessions and we can give to others as they have need and not worry and not be afraid. There are a lot of things that you can spend your life chasing after. And Jesus says, don't spend it chasing after the wrong things, things that will never satisfy. Jesus says, if you're going to chase after something in this life, then chase after me and my kingdom. Do this. And trust me to give you everything that you need because it is my Father's pleasure to share his kingdom with you. Friends, he has come and lived and died and rose again that you might have life and have it to the full, abundant life in him. So seek him first. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, you, know, you know our hearts. Lord, you know how prone they are to stray from you, how prone they are to put trust in other things other than you. And so we pray, Lord, that we would hear this word today, that our lives do not consist in an abundance of possessions. Our lives do not consist in what other people think about us. Lord, but our lives consist in the fact that you have called us your beloved children through your Son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you help us to to loosen our ties to our things, to our money, to our possessions, to our wealth? Would you open our hands and our hearts that we might give generously, putting our trust in you to provide for all of our needs? We thank you for all that you have given us and that you have provided the ultimate uh, sacrifice for us through your son, Jesus Christ. You have given us the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life in you. Lord, what more do we need than that? We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.